0: Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special on Sex and the City 2. Joining me in the studio is Julia Turner. Hi, Julia. Hi, Dana who is Slate's deputy editor and also my partner on the Culture Gab Fest and also my partner in seeing the movie last night. So, Julia, I sort of know because we walked out of this movie together, but go ahead and first give me your your overall reaction to Sex and the City.
1: Oh. (laughs) It was so disappointing. I mean, I don't know. You wanted to like it, right? I did want to like it. I have a real soft spot for Sex and the City. I will defend the series as a show that had something interesting to say about the emotional lives of single women and also had something interesting to say about fashion and the role it can play in a woman's life and her self-making. And the first movie disappointed me somewhat on both of those fronts. I thought it was a little more conventional than the show in ways that were disappointing, but I still thought it was a pretty fun romp and the characters were funny and the lines were good and the clothes were amusing. This was a mess, I thought. I thought the dialogue seemed hackneyed. I thought the show has much less interesting... I thought the movie had many less interesting things to say about married life than, it, uh, than the show did about single life. And I thought that the film, which takes us on a field trip to Abu Dhabi, had kind of a gross handling of the politics of the Middle East in a way that, that felt glib and weird and left me unsettled.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to agree. We'll we'll get into a plot summary in a second. But I feel like with this movie, all of the criticisms that people who hate sex in the city have always leveled against it seemed completely true to me. Things that I might have at least mildly defended the show against before. Yes, it's materialistic and consumeristic and kind of silly and trivial. But I probably would have just defended the series on the grounds that, you know, it's a half hour, once a week show that gives us a glimpse that we don't often get into female friendship. Granted, it's a very idealized world, economic world, especially that these women live in. But that it did have some truths, especially to me about, you Know, the four, the four friends. And also some really good performances. I really like the four women who play these characters, and they're so familiar with the characters now that I feel like they can do a lot even with bad dialogue. But this movie was really scratching the bottom of the well as far as bad dialogue, and and all of those things suddenly seem completely legitimate to me. Oh, it is really disgustingly consumeristic, and and I do feel really icky from watching it. But let's let's walk through the story a little bit with uh, digressions along the way for um uh, individual plot points. So we start off. It's two years since we left um, Carrie, having just married her, you know, long sought after and um, and struggled with love, Mr. Big, and where are they all at at the beginning? Uh. Miranda doesn't love her job the way she used to
1: because she has a boss who dismisses her. Charlotte is the supposedly happy mother of two kids, but the younger one just screams and cries all the time, and she's a bit exhausted and overworked. Uh, Carrie and Big are happy, but Carrie misses the old days when she used to get dressed up every night and go out to a restaurant or a weird PR opening for some mysterious product. And Mr. Big seems content to just lie on the couch and get takeout. So they've got a little internal strife brewing. And Samantha is struggling with menopause and is on some weird hormone kick.
0: Right. And, and has resolved as, as of the end of the last movie to remain single forever. So she doesn't have any, any permanent boyfriend throughout this movie, which gives her the possibility for the maximum number of, of hookups. Now, and so the first half of the movie is sort of Or a little bit less than half. The first hour, we should say that this is a two and a half hour long movie. So it really feels like a slog. Um, But the first hour or so to me felt like two reasonably okay episodes without very much happening in them mashed together. The whole part where they were in New York, that is. And then as soon as Samantha gets the possibility to take this PR trip, all expenses paid to some incredible luxury hotel in Abu Dhabi, the whole movie became like this strange travelogue. It really, really lost its way, I thought. And there's a very long scene in the middle that was just mortifyingly uncomfortable, I thought, where the four women are shown around by these very servile, um, well, one of them turns out to be Indian, actually. He's He's an immigrant from India. But I think the rest of them are supposed to be Arabs that are showing them through this this ridiculously luxurious hotel suite. And just there's this very static pacing of the scene where they go through one after the other, and these obsequious guys show them more things, and they're kind of ooing and eyeing. And what essentially doesn't make sense about the scene is that they already come from such a place of privilege that to watch them ooh and ah over yet more privilege just has a very icky kind of too many presents on Christmas morning feeling it's about so it. It's so weird. I mean, essentially, this
1: is a movie, the fundamental plot point of which is a junket. Samantha, the pr- the PR flack, is invited by the guy who runs this hotel to come on a junket all expenses paid with all her friends to go check out Abu Dhabi with the hope that possibly she might become his PR guy and help his hotel become a hot and happening international destination. So it really is just, they get in, they fly first class, and they say, ooh, it's so fun to fly first class on a fancy plane, and they get to the hotel. It, it's basically the rich admiring and envying the super, super rich in a way that just feels grotesque. In one moment, I mean, I am the least environmentally Attuned person you might encounter in the average day, but when they fly into Abu Dhabi, they're met with four white Maybach sedans, and they each get their own car to drive them around for the week with a chauffeur in the middle of this, you know, oil-rich paradise. And even I thought, why do you need four separate cars? And also, you're on a, you're, you know, you're on a vacation with your girlfriends. Don't you all want to be in the same car and gossip together? What is the point of driving through a new city by yourself?
0: It's true. There's not a single moment in all of the excess of the Abu Dhabi scenes where they say, no, we really don't need that. We're really fine. I mean, I guess there's a couple moments where they try to sort of, you know, treat their underlings with some kind of noblesse oblige. But I mean, essentially, the kind of global class dynamics that are going on in that middle section of the movie are so staggering that you can only watch them in complete dismay. It's really hard to get into the escapist mindset that the movie's trying to bring you into because of the the choices it's making.
1: The general ethos is, wouldn't it be fun if we all had a private car and a butler and a private elevator and, you know, a, a breakfast banquet table laden with more food than 25 people could eat. I mean, the movie's relationship to the recession is really interesting. I th- I feel like I've heard Michael Patrick King say and read in some of the press coverage of the movie that... He's they, the director, writer, and producer, we should say, and yeah, creator of the series. Yeah. Um, along with Darren Star, right? I guess, yeah, they co-created it. Um, but I think King was, may have been more involved with the movie. And he has sort of said, people are sick of the recession, they're sick of feeling poor they're sick of not shopping they just want to lark so the, the idea was to throw as much money and splendor and spending at the American populace who wants to go see this movie which to me feels like such a strange and tone deaf approach I mean it would be much more interesting to see I don't know maybe it wouldn't be a fun escapist movie but I think it would be more interesting to see big you know uh, perplexed by some kind of financial downfall and Carrie having to actually think about how much shoes cost or something. Right. I
0: mean, the only time that I can remember that the recession was mentioned in the entire movie, correct me if I'm wrong, is when Carrie says in voiceover, oh, well, Big and I decided because it's a bad market and it's a bad time to sell apartments that we would hang on to my old apartment. So there's a, a running theme throughout that Carrie's old apartment, the one she lived in the, the show, Sex in the City, is still around. And she just, I guess, rents it or owns it. Did she ever, she no, owned that apartment, right? she owned right? it and they just keep it. They just keep it empty and she kind of goes down and has alone time. In her apartment, but the idea of that being the nod to the recession—that oh, poor me—I have to keep my extra empty Manhattan apartment—is just again, it's sort of so mind-boggling that you can you can only stare at it in dismay. And the fundamental the
1: fundamental divide between her and Big in the movie before she goes off to to Abu Dhabi is that. so she she takes a two nights off at her old apartment to finish a story. and big, and then they have a great date afterwards. And Big says, "You know, that was kind of fun that we had a little break from each other, and then it was so exciting to be back together. Maybe we should maybe I should get a place too, and we should spend <laughs> oh, yeah. two nights a week off at our own places, and then we'll spend five nights a week here together. And this, of course, threatens Carrie and makes her wonder about their marriage and a lot of voiceover. However, the fundamental argument in their marriage for this whole movie is whether they should be a two-apartment or three-apartment <laughs> couple, childless couple, which is crazy.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I wonder. I think that maybe the class rage of the audience has been underestimated by by the makers of this movie. I just wonder if people, after the initial rush, I'm sure it'll win the weekend, and people will be excited to show up in their carry corsages and see the movie. We actually saw some people in carry corsages waiting online to see it last night. But I just wonder if if this movie is, has underestimated the 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 mood of the American public. It, it really is pretty oblivious, as as oblivious as any manifestation of Sex in the City yet.
1: I mean, people watch glamorous things during the Depression. I, maybe maybe not everyone will view it with that lens. But I I I had sort of a hard time losing myself in the the fun and the ruffles because it just seemed so out of touch.
0: Well, as long as we're talking about the fun and the ruffles, do you want to talk about clothes a little bit? I know you're going to write about clothes in the movie and you have a little fashion guide before you of some of the outfits they wear.
1: Yes, I was sent by some some Samantha-esque press flack, no doubt, uh, this book called Sex and the City 2, The Stories, The Fashion, The Adventure, which is basically just a a playbook in which it shows every single outfit that Carrie wore in the whole movie, which I got before the movie and decided not to look at before the movie because it felt like that was the, that's the only way to
0: spoil a Sex and the City movie, is to know what the outfits are going to be beforehand. <laughs> well, so then we should spoil some outfits since there's not that much else to spoil. Yeah. Really, there's not that much story to this movie. We've kind of covered it now. There are various incidents that happen throughout, you know, sort of mini conflicts, but it's sort of just a, a long wallow in a sort of luxurious abyss. I don't know how else to describe it. Right. Well, there
1: are... There are a couple of plot points we should discuss in a moment, but to briefly, the, my response to the fashion was similar to my response to the fashion in the first movie. I thought the show was very smart about fashion, that... It actually, as, as much as Carrie was supposedly a writer and that was her creative outlet and that's how we know her place in the city, in fact, she was a creator of personas through clothing and she would mix high and low and she would have couture shoes, but she would also find something funky and unexpected or masculine or unusual and kind of whip them together in these really interesting outfits. And I think her rise as a, as a kind of iconic character in American culture happened at the same time as fashion became obsessed with the mix and with kind of cultivating and curating a look that's pulled from lots of different places. So I think the show really captured that, may have even caused some of that, and just had a really interesting and fun approach to fashion and encouraged women to be creative and to not just buy the latest thing off the assembly line, but to think critically about what could work together and what might, you know, what are some of the fun possibilities that happen every morning when you get dressed, which is, I love that. I love that approach to clothes. I think you know, it's very fun to come up with fun things to wear, and it may be silly, but it's it's an aesthetic joy in life. And I liked the show's approach to it. The first movie, obsessed with labels, it was all about labels. It was all haute couture. It was and just an endless series of product placements from shishi designers, American, French, and otherwise.
0: Right, the wedding dress montage where they name each designer. I right? didn't. The name of the designer. She actually just the purely on the says
1: the name of every designer that she's that she's trying on in voiceover as she tries on wedding dresses for her big deal wedding. That doesn't happen. Um, And this movie was less overt and obvious about that, but fundamentally we're seeing a lot of incredibly expensive designer clothes, a few more interesting mixed up outfits. And the show does also kind of, and the movie does also kind of play with um, sort of Arabian themes, I suppose. It doesn't really give them kind of the crisp Kristen Scott Thomas in English patient-like Westerner in the desert vibe. You know, you, I was sort of expecting a few more like perfect open-necked linen button-down shirts.
0: No, it wasn't at all that. It wasn't the colonialist resort wear aesthetic. No, it was more like harem. Sort of harem pants, Yeah, right. it was
1: kind of lots of gold, lots of... Tassels, lots of scarves, lots of draping.
0: I actually would love to hear a Middle Eastern designer weigh in on those outfits and how orientalist and disturbing they found them. There were some incredibly weird outfits
1: beyond weird. I mean, harem stripper outfits, it was very strange. But I did like some of the colors. And as always, I liked Miranda's clothes the best. They always give Miranda the clothes that I would want to wear that are sort of a little more buttoned up with interesting hues and cool asymmetrical details.
0: There's also a clothing shout out, right? There's a moment where Carrie appears in a dress that actually harks back to a dress in the the show. And that makes me realize why our audience sort of gasped and clapped when that dress appeared. Yeah, she wears a dress on a date with Big
1: in this movie that she wore at some critical moment in their relationship earlier on Um, and the audience went so it really is the clothes that are the stars of these movies and the clothes are fun to look at here but they're not they they don't
0: they don't embody what I love most about Sex and the City fashion at its best. But again, and this is just of a piece with the whole feeling of the movie, the excessive clothes keeps you from being able to appreciate them as as plot points. I mean, there's that one moment where she goes to her old apartment and whips out an old dress and it means something to the audience, but in general, the costume changes are just so excessive and and constant that there's not any sense of you know, oh, that, that jacket is great because, you know, it represents this or that for Miranda. You know, they're not... The movie doesn't take the time to invest them with any story meaning the way that might have happened in, in the old show. Right. I mean, one thing that I thought was the issue with this movie is that the
1: the writers of this movie just don't have that much smart to say about the issues facing married people. I mean, it's the problem that any author has. It's it's fun to write the courtship. And once you have people all settled in their little slots with, and you know who's matched up with whom, it's harder to come up with a plot device. And I think the attempt here was, you know, if you go to the Middle East, a place where women have a very different interaction with public society, you give these mostly married women something else to comment on and talk about, which is the role of women in, in Arab life, which they do swipe at a little bit. Kind in their of, bubble-headed way? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The most—I don't know if I would say it's a strong scene aesthetically, but the kind of most vivid emotionally scene is the one where Samantha feels restrained by the sexual mores of Abu Dhabi, tries to comply, eventually flouts them, gets arrested for kissing someone on the beach, and eventually the girls get kicked out of the country early— Uh, the guy who's funding their junket revokes it because of how scandalous Samantha has been behaving. And they end up in a market trying to find Carrie's lost passport before they hightail it out of the country. And Samantha says, fuck it, I'm just going to wear shorts and a tank top. Screw these people and their social mores. This is bullshit. And, you know, she's surrounded by Arab men, you know, going on the call to prayer and somebody yanks her purse and she spills condoms all over the the ground in the marketplace and finally she just picks up all these Trojans and shouts at all of these Arab men like sex I have (laughs) sex I'm a woman who has sex and she's like pumping her pelvis and the men are getting angry and shuffling away I mean it was sort of a bald and preposterous confrontation. What does she make of that scene?
0: I actually, I mean, when you when you describe it out of context like that, it sounds kind of great. And I do love Kim Cattrall. I, I, I find her, you were saying you find Kristen Davis the funniest. I think maybe as a performer, I find Kim Cattrall the funniest, but she was given nothing to do in this movie but just kind of humiliate herself. Um, that scene, I think, could have been really strong if there'd been any real sense of the women encountering some, a different culture as anything other than the most alienated kind of tourists. You know, I mean, that's the one moment that they sense any kind of actual danger, or they actually, you know, kind of rub up against something that's, that's different. They're always so sheltered and, and so, you know, accompanied by their butlers in their luxury hotel that all of their observations about Middle Eastern culture sound just completely vapid and without substance. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, and then I want to finish up with a couple more plot points. As our listeners know, this podcast and all Slate podcasts are sponsored by Audible.com, which is a great site with more than 60,000 downloadable audiobooks. If you sign up through our URL, which is www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler, you get a credit good for one free book, which you can keep even if you decide not to stay with the service after your 14-day subscription. And the book we had to recommend this week, we were trying to, um, to scratch the Audible archives for something sort of related to Sex in the City, but something that we really wanted to recommend listening to. And I was thinking about courtship narratives and how Jane Austen and other great courtship narratives are all about what happens up until the day of the wedding and then everything ends. And you just kind of assume the happily ever after or the not happily ever after, but the part of life that is not narrated, right? Which is the, the post-marital part. Um, and so we thought maybe we would recommend a Jane Austen. There's lots of Jane Austen available on Audible. Basically, all of her novels and also the new um, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies line and, and all kinds of Jane Austen parodies and books about Jane Austen and her letters. But let's go with a, a retro audio selection on Audible, which is an old-school dramatization of the book. It's done by a bunch of different actors. It's um, just under the title Pride and Prejudice Retro Audio. It's available on audible.com. And again, the place to sign up for your membership is www.audiblepodcast.com. All right, well, there's one big thing that happens... Th- th- there's one big thing to spoil in this movie for those who followed the series closely. Do you want to go ahead and do the honors and spoil away? Sure.
1: Uh, in the souk, in the marketplace, Carrie encounters, surprisingly, Aiden, her old flame, the the guy she didn't marry, the guy she ditched for big, who's on a buying trip for his furniture and rug emporium. Um, and it's just so miraculous to see him in this desert place. And he invites her to dinner. And she says, Ah, oh, shocks, no, I got to have dinner with the gals. But then... She's just feeling so antsy in her marriage, and she gets a bad review from The New Yorker, and she just wants something to be sparkly and fun, so she gets super dolled up and goes out to dinner with him, and they have this nice dinner where they talk about how much they like their marriages to people who are not each other, and it's a little flirty and fun, but all well within the bounds of reason. And then as they're parting for the night, they smooch and they have a little smooch and then they both think, oh God, sorry, ah! And they run away from each other. Carrie returns to the girls. I screwed up, I smooched, what should I do, help? She convenes the Graces. They don't really give her very good advice. Samantha says, just sleep on it, don't, don't talk to your husband about it. Eventually she calls Big, tells him, and he kind of grumpily hangs up the phone.
0: See, I actually think that Samantha gives her great advice in that scene. And I mean, as totally absurd as it is to have such a huge plot point hang on you know, this one kiss with this guy, I actually thought that was a... The scene where she convenes the graces, as you nicely put it afterwards, really did kind of evoke the old show, including this, the irritating fact that Carrie was always the drama queen who had to get everyone else to drop what they were doing, right? It doesn't right. matter what everybody else's crises are. If Carrie has a problem, she's suddenly running around the hotel suite saying, get out of the bathtub, everybody come to the meeting about what I should do. <laughs> it's like, relationship fire drill. And is always sort of the one who hogs the attention in that way, which I guess works because she's kind of us. She's the audience proxy in a way, but in, in fact, by the real rules of friendship, it would be completely unfair how much how much space Carrie takes up in the friendship but I actually thought that Samantha's advice was great and the scene afterwards where she she tells big just seems like another sort of Carrie self-made drama everything would have been fine if she'd just gone home and forgotten about it yeah I, I, I did I meant more that um
1: Charlotte and Miranda sort of are like oh we're too drunk to give yeah, you yeah we're advice. too drunk to give you advice I did I did think Samantha gave her good advice and they're drunk because they had a, f- a f- mommy bonding session they had a bunch of cocktails and talked about how hard it is to be a mom which
0: was kind of a nice moment well, some of the nicer scenes in the movie are you know just moments when the any grouping of the women or the four women together are are relating to each other when we're not trying to you know advance a plot point or to wonder at some consumer marvel or another but just to to hear their conversations and even though the travails of being a mom conversation between Charlotte and Miranda was a little bit substance free, I sort of didn't mind that moment
1: it was it felt like a moment of genuine connection and friends actually supporting each other you know Kristen has Kristen Davis who plays Charlotte has been feeling guilty about how stressed she is in motherhood which she wanted to for so long and Miranda's kind of like I know I can tell you gotta you got to spill it it's okay to share and lean on my shoulder and I liked that that was a genuine moment um, one other big moment we haven't talked about is the gay wedding at the beginning of the movie yeah the very beginning of the movie is a big spoiler um, so As Charlotte puts it squealingly at the registry counter at Bergdorf Goodman, my gay best friend is marrying her gay best friend, meaning that Carrie's friend, Stanford Blatch, and Charlotte's friend... I don't know his last name, Anthony. Anthony. Yeah, I forget what his last name is. Anyway, these two gay friends, who, as I think was one of the plots of one of the episodes of the show... They
0: got together at the end of the show, yeah. Oh, didn't they? they? or maybe not but
1: I know what you're referring to is that they hated each other when they initially met I think it was one of those less one of the stories that they told in the show was that they set up the two gay best friends and of course they were a terrible match and both of the gay guys were like all you straight people do this, you think because you have one gay friend and another gay friend that they're necessarily going to fall in love. They're not. Get over it. That's so dumb. And it was a funny moment because I feel like that is a thing that can happen in in real life. And it was a funny moment of commentary on the New York dating scene from the show. It was totally obliterated by this movie. In fact, the two have found true love and, and are now going to be eternally wed.
0: And so, yeah, so the set piece that starts the movie, which was a fairly promising beginning and, you know, sort of silly, glitzy, old show style is this ridiculously over the top kind of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers style wedding that they've staged that um, that Sarah Jessica Parker is the best man in conducted by Liza Minnelli Oh yes, Liza Minnelli marries them and then she subsequently performs this dance of all the single ladies which was so kind of absurd that I kind of had to it. enjoy it. It, it was, was pretty great to see her doing bond. doing the Beyonce choreography. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was a, a start to the movie that you sort of thought, well, I could be interested to see where this goes, especially given the fact that the whole movie is going to be about marriage and the compromises of marriage and, you know, staying faithful and things like that. And it's established at the beginning that Anthony and Stanford have an arrangement, right? That they have an arrangement that that Anthony can cheat in any state where gay, gay marriage, marriage is. isn't legal? <laughs> is it that he can he can cheat in any state where it's not legal or where it is legal? I think where it's not legal, he can cheat. Oh, wow, that gives thing. him a lot of options. Exactly. And so, th- so the movie starts off with this unconventional idea of marriage that's never explored again. I thought that was a little bit unfortunate because, I mean, it is... It is a very gay-friendly series. One might say that it's so homophilic that it almost wraps around toward homophobia again because the view of the gay characters is sort of so extreme. But both the creators of the show are gay, and it's obvious that they are interested in some idea of an alternative marriage. And yet, Anthony and Stanford's marriage is never revisited. We don't see them again. Well, maybe we see them again with the women in some scenes, but we don't see them again together or learn how their cheating policy is going or not going or if they're happy or anything else. Yeah, that was one of the more interesting
1: unorthodox arrangements that the show never really quite encounters. And and that actually was one thing that was frustrating about the finale, too, and the resolution of the Carrie-Big conflict. So one of the things that Carrie and Aiden talk about when they're having their flirty night is that Carrie doesn't like engagement rings. She never wanted to wear one. She thought it felt too—it crushed her independence and you know, for a girl who likes glitz and bling, the idea that they've written a Carrie who doesn't approve of engagement rings, I liked that moment. Yeah,
0: I did too. Also the fact that that Carrie and Big don't want to have children and that the movie was totally fine with that and did not make her struggle with the question. But anyway, go on. Yes, I liked that
1: too. That, that there is still some some pure thread of the original show of having Carrie be an unorthodox woman who has her own approach to, to life's traditions. However... The denouement of the movie. When she comes home and she waits for Big to show up and she's so anxious and does he hate her and will has she lost her love forever because of this meaningless smooch with Aiden in Abu Dhabi. He comes home. He leaves her hanging a little bit. He says, you really put me through the ringer on this one. I, I didn't like it at all. But obviously he forgives her. And he says, here's your punishment. Out of the jacket pocket, he pulls a you know ring box, pops it open. Her punishment is she now has to wear an engagement ring. It's some glamorous black diamond, because she's so unusual. And uh, she says, oh, okay.
0: Okay, why not?
1: You know, and that's sort of it. And it is sort of a, a more conventional...
0: End. As our friend Troy Patterson, who also happened to be at the movie last night, pointed out as we were walking out, all the problems in this movie, no matter how vast, could be solved by either real estate or jewelry, which is just such an icky feeling to be left with at the end of the movie. She gives him a Rolex, too, right? In another key scene. So there's just really a lot of symbolic exchanging of, of bling in this movie, and it actually accomplishes the emotional goals that it was meant to accomplish, which is just, just, it just seems like ultimately the, it's so reprehensible, you know, what this movie ends up being about. Yeah. That's a real drag. Well, thank you, nonetheless, for suffering through it with me. And thanks a lot for coming in for this Slate Spoiler Special. Thanks, Dana. It was really fun. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens